this has been a wild week for me. Um, on top of the sort of the the mental trippiness of being ordained, even though I've been doing the work for five years, um, which I've been trying to deflect, like it's not it's not a big deal, guys. You know. But it's been weighing on me, pressure of that, um, combined with preaching. Um, it's been a really tough week. I've had to battle the flesh, um, and I've had to battle in the spirit. Um, writing the sermon was incredibly difficult, incredibly difficult. And I, I feel like that every week, but there was something special about this sermon that was more difficult than usual. And it wasn't, it wasn't that I was having a hard time understanding the material. It's that I was battling flesh and in spirit um, and, and losing a lot of that battle, losing a lot of that battle. It wasn't until, I'm not kidding, Saturday night, that I finally woke up, and I mean, I was awake, but spiritually just woke up and realized this whole week I have not done what I always do, which is ask the Lord to protect me from the enemy, to not lead me into temptation, to supply me. I go through the Lord's Prayer um, on a regular basis, not always word for word, but the concepts are things I've always gone through. And so Saturday night, <laughs> I don't even know what time it was, so late. I prayed that God would protect me and a weight just lifted right off. It's not something I can show, so you'll just have to take it on whether or not you believe my word. But the enemy was attacking me over this sermon. And so that night, I threw out all my slides, <laughs> took one third of the message out, ripped it out, and replaced it. I should say this morning I did all that. Um, it was, I think it was like, I think it was after midnight. It was like one or something. And that's not because God wasn't faithful. That was because I hadn't submitted myself dutifully in prayer. And there was so much fleshly desire to make this sermon exciting. It's like, I'm going to be ordained. I want everybody to feel excited after this. I want this to be a joyous celebration. It's about the wise men. The wise men bring gifts. What's more fun than gifts? Essentially, they give Mary and Joseph their first baby shower. You know, it's like, it's this cool thing. And then I kept going through the text, and all the things that seemed really exciting were not verifiable in, in Scripture. They weren't verifiable. They were things that most commentaries would talk about and get all excited about because they're fun things to talk about. But the details aren't actually in Scripture. You can suppose that some of them through historical reference and um, we'll talk about them a little bit, but the whole sermon I was trying to build was this exciting, fleshly sermon that wasn't actually true to the text. So this is going to be a mess this morning, but I'm going to try to stay really true to the text because I don't know that I have the clearest head at 1 a.m. <laughs> so, it's, yeah, it'll be fun. But um, the text is actually heavy. It's kind of a downer. Because the details that we find, the most rich details in this passage, aren't about the wise men. It tells you what happens with the wise men, but the details are about Herod the Great. You can't talk about Herod the Great and have a good time. You just can't. This morning, I do want to read scripture over us. Um, this is for me. This is for you guys. 
to remind ourselves of some truth before we dive into the passage today. So I'm going to read from Psalm 86, and it should be on the board for you. Verses 8 through 10. Lord, there is no one like you among the gods, and there is no works like yours. All the nations you have made will come and bow down before you. Lord, and you will and will honor your name. For you are great and perform wonders. You alone are God. You alone are God. And this is the heart condition that we need. If there is any glory for us on the table, it is misplaced. There is some joy to today. There is some joy today. Because you guys, God came down to earth. This is still true. And he did it in order that he might meet us here, where we are. And all it takes for us to meet him is to have an open, humble heart before him. And this week, we get to celebrate. We're going to go home with our families, and we get to celebrate the arrival of Son of Man, as he would call himself. So Merry Christmas. Praise God. The condition of the heart is and has always been what God looks upon. This is what God wants from us. He wants an open, genuine, transparent heart before him. Take this Old Testament example from David's life. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says this, But the Lord said to Samuel, and this is the prophet Samuel, The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his stature because I have rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees, for humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. Do you guys know who, you guys know who he was talking about right there? Uh, that's a good guess, but no, not Saul. This was David's impressive-looking brother, Eliab. Woo! What a man. Absolute legend, Eliab, that guy. That was, anyway, that was, <laughs> that's how Samuel saw it. You know, surely this dude could knock out a few Philistines. But God wasn't looking for what a man could do. He was looking for a man that would submit to what God desires to do. A man who would fight an impossible battle against a giant merely because God asked him to. David was willing to do that. God wanted a man who could have his enemy delivered to him on a silver platter, vulnerable and weak. Taking a squat in a cave, you might say. And yet wouldn't strike. And why wouldn't he strike? Was it because Saul wasn't evil? No, he was. He wouldn't strike because God had other plans, and David was willing to wait. God wanted a man who, when confronted with his own sin, a devastating and shameful sin, would humble himself, acknowledge the sin, and turn back to seeking God's heart. He wanted a man that desired after God's own heart. That was David. He still wants that. I didn't stop with David. This has always been God's way with man, and it's still true today. This morning, we get a look at some men that knew Jesus, or I should say knew of Jesus, searched for him, and found him. Some men who knew of Jesus did not search for him, and so therefore never found him. 
And lastly, a man who hears about Jesus sends others to go search for Jesus and will never find him himself. So open up to Matthew 2. Matthew 2. We'll start in verse 1. We're going to read through the story. The story of the Magi. The wise men. Those who brought gifts, kingly gifts. Another set of men who followed a star found their way. In Matthew 2, verses, we'll just start with the first two verses. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Saying, rather asking, For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. So who are these magi? The Greek term magi would refer to um, a very wide range of things, actually. This is, again, where it gets a little tricky. There are so many things that were so fun and spicy that you could talk about and be tickling ears and having fun. You could have a good time with this. Historically, they were probably astrologers. Problem is, we don't really actually know. They could have been magicians. They could have been those who interpreted dreams. They could have been all of those. Historically, the term magi was fairly general. Most biblical scholars agree it was pro- they were probably astrologers based on the time and the fact that they were looking to the stars and saw Jesus' star, but we don't know. We don't know. Being from the east could either be banished Jews or what would at least be people who came in close contact with banished Jews. This would probably be why they would understand the signs. But we don't know. There are commentaries who say absolutely these wise men were Jews themselves, even practicing Jews. And then there were commentaries that say these were absolutely pagan magicians who were influenced by Jews. And we don't know. Fun to talk about, but we don't know. It's not what the details are about in here. Now it's true, Babylon and Syria had conquered and dispersed the Jewish people hundreds of years before here. So leaving many from Israel and Judah stranded in the east, so of course it makes sense. With those banished Jews, you would likely have biblical knowledge, knowledge of prophecies surrounding the coming of the Messiah. That's probably how they knew. But we don't know. God didn't say in the text, so it doesn't matter. So let me be very clear. Scripture does not tell us exactly how the wise men knew the star indicated Jesus' birth. This just makes sense based off of what we know from history. Um, There are actually um, secular sources, too, that we can pull from, that people pull from. Um, A a lot of commentaries quoted um, the Roman historian Suetonius. Suetonius said this, um, not long after Jesus had been born. He said, "There there had spread all over the Orient an old and established belief that it was fated at the time for men coming from Judah to rule the world. So you even have Roman historians who are saying, we all heard and knew that something was supposed to happen. So all the regions seem to understand in the Orient, at least according to this historian, extra biblical. And that would 
that would all come from just some of God working terrible things together for good. How would the Orient know at all? Logically, it's probably from all the Jews that were banished all those years ago. We don't know a ton about these wise men. How did they know the star signified Jesus' birth? Do they continue to serve the Lord? This, this has been burning on my mind. Do they consider, continue to serve the Lord after returning home? But we don't know. No matter what happens, we do know what was recorded for their portion of history, and it's a wonderful thing. Here's what we do know for sure. Their hearts were in the right place for God to use them. Well, God can use somebody whose heart isn't in the right place, but for the wonderful story that we do have, their hearts were in the right place to be aligned with what God was doing rather than working against him. How do we know that? Well, verse 2 tells us, again, saying, this is them speaking to the town, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising, and we have come to worship him. Their heart was in the right place. They came seeking Jesus so that they might worship him. So they're seeking Jesus, and they're going to, we know the story, they're going to find him. God is going to reveal Jesus' location to them because their heart was in the right place. The wise men's hearts are in the right place, and they have come to worship God who has the power to put the stars in the sky. They did not come to overthrow anyone, nor did they come to receive anything. They merely came to give gifts, worship, and honor, which is to say they came with a right response in light of God's deeds. They recognized the star. They recognized it as God's work. And so they came in the right response. God did big work. Can't do that, so therefore I should worship it. Simple. Sadly, and I, I, think, I, I think I actually mean this now. I think I actually mean sadly now. Herod's heart response is a very, he responds in a very different way. It's impossible to not feel sorrow for the destruction of someone you love. And yet I find it so difficult to mourn for the loss of an evil leader. I find that incredibly difficult. And yet scripture says God takes no joy in the death of the wicked. The reason we find that Difficult is quite simple. The answer is that we don't love our enemies and neighbors the way that God commanded us to. The simple truth is that Herod was, Herod was once a baby. That little baby came out dependent on his mother for everything. That little baby looked around the world and began to learn how life works one step at a time. There was a time when Herod the Great marveled at a magical game of peekaboo. Blew, blew his mind. Surely his eyes would light up at the smile and approval of his parents' face. Life is beautiful. And the destruction of it is devastating. We don't have to approve of wicked men in order to mourn their destruction. So they come to Herod and, and where is the king of the Jews, they ask. 
Verse 3 tells us what Herod's response was. It says, when Herod, King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. Scripture doesn't tell us why Jerusalem was disturbed. There's fun theories, but you guessed it. We don't know. We don't know. So many possibilities and unknowns. What we are given, what we are given, the details that we were gifted, these terrible, sad details, is into why King Herod was disturbed. We get our first clue in verse 4. He brings together all the guys that should be able to inform him on Scripture where this Messiah would be born, this defenseless baby, and he asks them what seems to be the first piece of deception. Notice that he doesn't ask where Jesus was born. He asks where the Messiah would be born. Essentially, he's like, hey, uh, if he were to be born, where would that be? Just out of, you know, curiosity. Just wondering, since you scribes know all kinds of stuffs. Herod was a deceptive man. You can be sure that where there is deception, there is fear as well. Deception is a sort of byproduct of, or fruit of, if you will, of fear. Deception is a byproduct of fear. Think about it. Why do we deceive our bosses, our spouses, our friends? It's because we fear some sort of consequence. Status will lose, position will lose, value will lose. In some way, we deceive others because we have fear of what we might lose. Deception reveals vulnerability, weakness, or at least a perceived weakness. Guys, I have absolutely fallen short of what I'm about to say throughout my life. But guys, and this is hard in a church. If you grew up in a church, you know what I'm talking about. There is no need for a son or daughter of Jesus to have any fear. Therefore, there is no need for deception amongst us. Nothing. Not one bit. Scripture completely defeats that if believed to its fullest. We are redeemed by Christ. You are redeemed and appreciated by Christ. He loves you. There is nothing we can't work through, according to Scripture, because of Jesus' work. So there's no need deception, because there's no need for fear. Even if the consequences of my actions lead to my death, rightfully so, like the thief on the cross, who deserved to be up there and he knew it, I will find out very quickly that to die is gain. Fear nothing but God. Fear nothing but God. Herod feared a lot, which is what started his, his inquiry. 
Turns out that not much inquiry was required, as we'll see, because in verse 5, they're just like, yeah, the Messiah, uh, Bethlehem, Bethlehem of Judah, speci specifically the Judah one, not that other one, like Judah, J-U-D-E, yeah, Bethlehem of Judah. Yeah, that's what the prophet wrote. That's where he'll be. Go find him. Took like nothing. He was like, hey, where's he going to be? And they're like, let me write it down for you. Then they loosely quote from Micah 5.2 in verse 6, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people. These chief priests, these scribes, may not have even thought twice about a star in the sky. As the, there is no prophecy that explicitly said that a star would lead to the Messiah. On top of that, the religious leaders weren't exactly looking to the Magi for scriptural truth. But the real question is, if they didn't have scripture to tell them exactly what the star meant, and if they had no reason to believe the words of the Magi, was there anyone that could have told them what it all meant? Was there anybody who could have told the religious leaders, go here, follow this star, you will find your Messiah? Although we aren't certain how the Magi knew the star's significance, we know exactly how the shepherds know. You see, an angel of the Lord popped out of nowhere and was like, dudes, star's going to point to the Messiah. Shepherd's like, okay, got it. Simple as that. God sent messengers to the shepherds to reveal where the Messiah would be, which he could have done for the chief priests, the scribes. Why didn't he? Why did God reveal Jesus' location to the shepherds? There's surely more than one reason, but what we know for sure is this. Their hearts were in the right place. How do we know? Because they returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen. The shepherds' hearts were in the right place. So why didn't God reveal Jesus to the priests and scribes? Because of the condition of their hearts. What is the condition of our hearts? Would God reveal to us? At that point, Herod had the location. He now needs to know the age of this Jewish Messiah. In verse 7, he continues to weave his web. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men back and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for this child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. Boom. He now has the age and location Herod the Great Holmes has done his investigative work. Now he just needs to sit back and let the wise men do all the legwork for him. Go do the search work. Report back to me so that I can go and worship him. These are eerie, creepy words. What Mr. Great meant to say was, 
report back to me so that I can go rip a baby out of the arms of a young, poor, defenseless mother and murder him. That's what he meant to say in here. That's what he did say in his heart. Herod the Great is seeking Jesus. And I'll say genuinely, he genuinely wants to seek Jesus but the intent of his heart is murder. Now, the wise men probably don't know Herod's evil intent at this point. They got the answer they were looking for. They've been searching, where is this Jesus at? Or Messiah, they didn't know his name. This, where's this Messiah, this king? And they seem eager to hit the road again. Makes sense. They came all the way from the Orient, probably, somewhere in the east. So in verse 9, after hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star, they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. So many things that star could be. So many cool things. But we don't know. <laughs> we just don't know. I would say considering it moved on its own, it's probably none of the theories I read. So I'm not even going to mention them. They searched and they found Jesus. Why did God reveal Jesus to the wise men? There are more than one reason, but we know that the condition of their hearts were right. How do we know that? Verse 11 in the text, entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Ah. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I was going to say you could write a whole commentary on these three things, but people did. It's a, it's a thing. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. There is so much information about these three gifts, and some of it's really cool, and a lot of it makes tons of sense. They smell good. It's money. It's your, your basic Baby shower gifts, you know, gift cards and things that smell good. It's like, it's what you'd expect. But it's more than that. These are kingly gifts. The, the men from the Orient would presumably not know what they were doing, but they were giving very kingly gifts. Myrrh is used in burial. But I don't want to focus on all those cool details. God had a very specific purpose for these gifts, a very practical use for these gifts. These gifts had great value. They had great value. Before we get to that, I want to remember we are talking today about the hearts of these people. These wise men rejoiced at the sight of the star, entered the house, and at the sight of Jesus, this baby fell to their knees and worshiped. That's why God led them to Jesus. The condition of their hearts was ready to be led in humble submission. And so it was time. It was time for God to lead these men to Jesus. We're not told what the wise men plan to do next, but I think we get a, a hint in verse 12. He says, and being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. 
Why give a warning if there was no intent to go back? We can safely assume by this warning that the wise men probably believed Herod's deception. Maybe Herod was really great at deceiving people. Maybe all the prophecies about kings and nations bowing down to the Messiah made it all believable to them, and maybe they'd heard those. But we don't know. (laughs) One more thing on that list. Sounds so exciting, but we don't know. It doesn't matter whether they were going to go back or not. God preserved the Messiah. Whatever the case was, God sends a warning through a dream, and our Easterner friends, having genuine hearts, listen and choose to travel another way. By this dream, we see the first confirmation that Herod's heart was indeed wicked. His heart intent was wicked. If you read further on, you'll find that in Herod's rage at being sidestepped by the wise men, he ordered every single boy, two years and under, to be executed as if they were criminals. Every single mama and daddy of a baby boy cried out in agony that day. An irreplaceable hole that would never, ever fully heal. And for what? This is what drives at me. This is what this whole sermon for me has been all about. For what? How does Herod's story end? He dies. And before Jesus is even grown, probably very quickly, within a couple years after he ordered the execution of so many toddlers, grasping for power and money and admiration, leaving a long line of pain, death, and destruction behind him. He simply dies in the end anyways. He looked for Jesus and did not find because his heart condition was wrong. Herod looked at everything he had and said it's not enough. That was the condition of his heart. And you know what's crazy Crazy is he was right. It wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. In fact, that drove him to madness. He died in, I mean, he was wrecked with insanity, tried to kill himself. Madness. It wasn't enough. None of it was enough. He had kingdoms. He had fame. He had power. He had the name great because he built such incredible things. And it was not enough. It was never enough. His striving for the world and its goods and its power and its wealth and its comforts and its beauty was not enough without the heart and soul that made it all exist in the first place. (laughs) You get to the part I removed from my sermon originally and then put back last night. I want to read to you the words from um, a musical group, The Modern Post. And I I was conflicted on on reading this because um, at least one of the writers of this song has really struggled in life. And um, it's fallen away 
last I knew. I don't know where he's at now. And then I realized that so much of the Psalms was written by men who fell away. And the truth of these words are real, and it's based off of, I think, somewhat some experience from these men. And the description is very effective. Effective enough that it makes me believe there's some experience behind this. Because he says it better than I could. Though all the wealth of men was mine to squander, and towers of ivory rose beneath my feet, were palaces of pleasure mine to wander, the sum of it would leave me incomplete. Though every soul would hold my name in honor and truest love was always by my side, my praises sung by grateful sons and daughters, my soul would never still be satisfied. Though I could live for all to lift them higher or spend the century singing light within, seeking light within, though I indulge my every dark desire, exhausting every avenue of sin. To make me whole, it's not enough, it never was. Awake my soul, it's not enough, it never was. It's not enough, it's not enough, I could walk the world forever till my shoes were filled with blood. It's not enough. It's not enough. I could right all wrongs or ravage everything beneath the sun. It's not enough. It's not enough, though all would bow to me till I could drink my fill of fear and love. It's not enough. It's not enough. That's Herod. The song wasn't written about Herod as far as I know, but this is a reality of the condition of a human heart that has gone after the world and sought everything that it could offer them and came up empty realizing it's not enough. And it's more than that. It's more than not enough. It's, it wasn't just not enough for Herod. His desires for the world caused incalculable pain, pain and suffering. Guys, we are humankind. We were put in the garden to walk in perfect relationship with the creator of everything that's good. When we pursue everything this world has to offer, all the filth, all of the evil internal desires, when we pursue everything it has to offer, we don't just destroy ourselves, we damage and destroy everything good around us. It's more than just not enough. It destroys. It actually destroys. This world destroys. Worship team, you can come on up. The shepherds and the wise men hearts were genuine. So they got to see the face of God. The Messiah himself, the priests, scribes, and Herod's heart were hard. So they missed him. 
leaving destruction in their wake. There's only one thing that will ever be enough. That is to be back in right relationship with God. Today, tomorrow, and every day, God is with us. That is a true statement because he sent his son to die that we might live. And this week, this week, we get to celebrate the infant savior and his arrival. We were made specifically to be in perfect fellowship with God and with each other. Ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, mankind's chance of walking back into the garden looked impossible. But there was one single glimmer of hope, reference to a Messiah, the one that would rule an everlasting kingdom, not just a Messiah, but an everlasting Messiah. One who would be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Wonderful Counselor, and Prince of Peace. One who would bring us, me and you, all of us together, back into the garden. Jesus of Nazareth. Today, this this week, we celebrate the fact that he came to this earth as our Messiah. We get to be with him forever. Lord, what can we do in sight of Scripture except praise your name? If understood correctly, all truth leads back to your glory. We owe nothing for ourselves. We recognize that it's your work within us. The fruits of this world are destruction, depravity, and we don't want any of it. We seek to honor your name. We want to have the hearts of the shepherds and the wise men, Mary and Joseph. We want to come to you with ready hearts. Lord, this life battle is hard. Would you protect us? Would you protect us as a church as we seek to honor your name? Would you protect these people? this group that you've gathered together, this little church in this little town. Protect our children. Raise them up with us. Draw them to yourself. Draw willing hearts to yourself. This is in your name.